Hey, good morning, family. Miss you guys. We're already on chapter three, and I'm sure as you guys noticed, there are many interesting things going on here in chapter three. Uh, from this new character named John the Baptist, uh, who dresses like the prophet Elijah, and he eats weird food, uh, to him saying that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So repent. He speaks of an axe being laid to the root of the trees, uh, to a winnowing fork and a threshing floor, to baptism by water and baptism by fire. Um, and then we see at Jesus' baptism that the spirit descends like a dove and the voice of God speaks. And, and this should remind us of the first pages of the Bible where water, spirit hovering, and the voice of God speaking all are at the same place. So this should remind us of the beginning of creation, or in this case, the beginning of a new creation. So. Those are some of the highlights, uh, the things that, that kind of sort of should have stood out to you uh, from a surface level um, reading and kind of popping out at us um, at, at our first take or whatever. So let's try and look a little bit more into all of these things and, and kind of see what we come up with. This is the first time that we've heard from the Lord's prophets in about 400 years. The last one that we'd heard from was Malachi when the people had come back from exile. But this isn't the first time that there's been a 400 years or about um, of a waiting time period in the Bible. God tells Abraham that his descendants will be afflicted for 400 years. In Genesis 15, 13, uh, then the Lord said to Abraham, know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So the last time there was 400 years of waiting, God sent his servant Moses to prepare the way for his people to be let out of bondage and slavery out of Egypt and into a, a new and spacious land, one that flowed with milk and honey and things that they didn't work for, uh, but were God's blessings of abundance for them. In Deuteronomy 6, 10 through 11, it says, and when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. So this was the first 400 years. This is what God did the first time. God takes them out of bondage and gives them a great new land full of abundance and provisions already in place for them. So when we get to the second 400 year period leading up to John the Baptist, we should be wondering if something similar is about to happen. So let's see what the plan is this time. And Malachi, the last prophet that we'd heard from, Malachi actually prophesies about the coming of John the Baptist. Malachi 4, 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Ah, so this is why Matthew makes it clear that John dresses like Elijah with the leather belt and the camel hair. It's a fulfillment of this prophecy. We see this also in the way that Matthew starts this section, in those days. This was a common phrase by the Old Testament prophets to indicate the fulfillment of prophecy. So in Malachi, we have Elijah, or John the Baptist, coming before the great and awesome day of the Lord. So now we have to talk about the day of the Lord. All right, in our Western mind, we often associate the day of the Lord with end times and the battle of Armageddon and things like that. And although there are some elements of that, the Jewish mind thinks of it a little differently. The day of the Lord has already happened. It still happens and ultimately one day it will come to its full culmination at the end of the age in the final day of the Lord. The prophets speak of numerous days of the Lord. 
Anytime God comes with judgment or, or when he confronts the evil of the world, when he intervenes to stop corrupt societies and rescue his people, this is the day of the Lord. And ultimately, it will all culminate in one final great day of the Lord at the end of the age. So probably the best way that it is to kind of like think about it would be have like a, a little d day of the Lord and then a big d day of the Lord. It's like looking at a mountain range and seeing that there are numerous foothills, but realizing that they all lead up to one final great giant mountain. The first time that we actually see the concept of a day when God leveled his judgment on an oppressor of his people was back in Egypt. Exodus 13, 3 says, When Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. Exodus 14, 30-31 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. It was this day that God leveled his judgment against the proud and oppressive enemy of his people. So this language gets picked up by the different Jewish writers and the prophets whenever they want to refer to a day of reckoning or a day of the Lord. And at times, God actually levels his judgment against Israel because they have become just like their enemies. At one point, they became just like Egypt. Under Solomon, they accumulated great wealth. Uh, they even had horses that were gathered from Egypt. They married wives from other nations, uh, m married multiple wives. Uh, enforced slave labor and they worshiped other gods. So at different times, the prophet actually, the prophets, they actually say that the Lord is coming against Israel. They have rebelled and they have turned away from the Lord and God is gonna send Assyria or Babylon or the Persians to come and conquer them and bring his judgment on his own people, a day of the Lord. So when Malachi is saying that in Malachi 4, 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. We have to keep this day of the Lord language in mind. God's judgment is coming. He will free those who are his and those who bow the knee to him in humble worship and submission. But to those who walk not in his way, they will be blown away and burned like the chaff in fire. So when John starts by saying, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, and we have all of these other words and phrases and descriptions that are all associated with the day of the Lord, from him dressing like a prophet, to the food that he eats, locusts, to words or phrases like wrath, to come, or fire, or threshing floor, or chaff. This is all day of the Lord style language. And these words, repent, locust, threshing floor, fire, they should actually make us think of the book of Joel. Uh, Joel tells us of the future invading armies that will swarm and destroy like locusts, but the people should repent and fast and pray and turn to God. And he actually tells them what true repentance looks like. Joel 2, 12 through 13 says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all of your heart, with fasting and weeping and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. So it's what the other prophets have already been saying too, that the people need a new heart, a, a heart of flesh, not of stone. This is about heart change, not an outward show. Turn your hearts to me, not just your outward actions. 
verse 13 goes on to say, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. This is the same thing that God said to Moses after the golden calf rebellion. He will bring his judgment, but his judgment is held within the palm of his mercy. If you repent, if you turn to him, he will be gracious and merciful and faithful to the end. So this is what we should be seeing when we are reading this. This day of the Lord is upon us. The, the kingdom of God is here. But what does that look like and, and, and how does that play out? So we will actually see Matthew pull from three specific Old Testament passages and give us an idea of what this is actually going to look like. Two of them are from Isaiah and one of them is from Psalms. In Matthew 3, verse 3, Matthew actually quotes from Isaiah 40. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. This Isaiah quote is about God's return and restoration of his people to their land from exile. And later on, it took on a hope for the coming Messiah. Both contexts, when taken together, actually give greater revelation of the restoration and the reconciliation of what Jesus is about to do. And whenever there's a, a passage that's quoted from the Old Testament, we should uh, look for more than just the specific verse that is quoted. We should go back and read the context, the, the whole the whole chapter, the whole surrounding chapters um, that, that that verse or verses are being pulled from. Uh, oftentimes it will actually uh, hugely influence what what the New Testament writer is actually saying if we're actually pulling in the full context of what what's actually being said in the Old Testament. So in Isaiah 40, 9 through 31, it says, Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord your God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom, and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens with a span, and closed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? What did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastland like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for burnt offerings. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than, less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compares with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it, and, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts it with silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman and sets up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. 
who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither and the tempest carries off, carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His un understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. This is the message that John the Baptist comes to bring, to prepare the way of the one. The Lord comes with might. He tends his flock like a shepherd who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance. Do you not know? Have you not heard? It is the everlasting God. Who would you compare him to? The Lord, the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. Whoever waits on the Lord will have their strength renewed and they will mount up with wings like eagles and run and not weary and walk and not faint. This is our God. This is our Messiah. He has come as God in the flesh to show his power and mercy and this is what John the Baptist has come to show. The day of the Lord is here. Repent, turn from your rebellious ways for the Lord, the everlasting one, he's here. John starts confronting the Jewish leaders, telling them that they are the seed of the serpent, a brood of vipers. They know what he's saying. They know the scriptures. He's saying that they are filled with the same animating force of evil that was in the beginning. He tells them that even now the ax has been laid to the tree. Just like in Isaiah, the day of the Lord came on Israel and, I, and Assyria and Babylon came and chopped them down. But just like Isaiah prophesied, a shoot, a branch from the root of Jesse would sprout up from the original stump. Jesus, the Nazarene, right? But you who do not bear good fruit, you'll be thrown into the fire to burn. John minces no words. He goes straight at the Jewish leaders, just like Moses did with Pharaoh. He confronted Pharaoh and, and warned of the wrath to come and Pharaoh didn't listen. John is warning them that if they continue on the same trajectory that they have been, that they've been on, that they have a destruction in their future and it's something that they are not prepared for. John says that he comes baptizing in water, but one greater than he will come baptizing with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. This is definitely day of the Lord imagery, typical of the prophets. But what I find interesting is how he will baptize with fire and the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. For those who walk in God's ways, 
his fire is is good and and right. We see God's presence shown at a, as a burning bush with fire, um, and and Moses is is told that he should take off his sandals because the ground is holy. We see while they wander in the desert uh, that they follow a pillar of fire, the presence of God. We see when Solomon builds the temple, the fire comes down from heaven and fills the temple. We see in Isaiah that even when when he says that, hey, I'm an unclean person. And even still, God takes a coal. God has one of the one of the angels take a coal and 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 touches it to his lips and makes him clean with the fire of God. But on the opposite side, for those who don't walk in his way, they are kept out of his presence by a flaming fiery sword in the garden. They are destroyed by fire from heaven in Sodom and Gomorrah. And the prophets use the image of fire as judgment for wickedness regularly. So there seems to be two ways that this baptism of fire takes place. It can purify and show the presence of God in your life, just as we see it at Pentecost, or it can bring the judgment of God by consuming and destroying. All right, let's talk about the baptism part. This is, this is where I've been wanting to get to the whole time. Uh, John wanted Jesus to baptize him, but Jesus said, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness, but Jesus is not sinful. Ah, yes, the beauty and the majesty of our Lord. He has no sin, but he takes on human flesh and fully in every way identifies with this, his unclean people. He does not need to do some sort of ritual cleansing to make himself or show himself to be righteous, but as one who identifies with his people, he joins them even in their baptismal cleansing and repentance. Jesus then, filled with the Spirit, becomes the long-awaited and prophesied for Son of Man, a human who would actually rule and reign and live in and by the life of God. But in this baptism, there's so much going on. As we mentioned earlier, our minds should go to creation, the Spirit hovering over the waters and the voice of God speaking. It should go to Noah sending out the dove at the end of the flood and, and entering into a new creation. And this new beginning mindset, in this sort of something new taking place, in this moment of the kingdom of God entering into, uh, again, into creation, we see the anointing of the king of kings. And we will see that Matthew actually highlights this, that Jesus is king. And Matthew 3 16 through 17 it says and when jesus was baptized immediately he went up from the water and behold the heavens were opened to him and he saw the spirit of god descending like a dove and coming to rest on him and behold a voice from heaven said this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased this quotation this is my beloved son with whom i am well pleased this is actually splicing together of two separate old testament passages Psalm 2, verse 7, and Isaiah 42, verse 1. Psalm 2, in my Bible, is titled, The Reign of the Lord's Anointed. And it reads, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath. 
and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. You are my son. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your heritage. It is the blessing of Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him, through his descendants. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Matthew wants to see that Jesus, our King, is here now, and he has come to set up his kingdom here and now. Isaiah 42 continues this on even further, and it shows us how this kingly servant will continue to rule. Isaiah 42, 1 through 12 says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for this for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and, the, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. He is the chosen of God. He has received the spirit of God to bring forth justice to the nations. He will not break a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. He will not snuff out. He will make a new covenant with his people. He will open the eyes of the blind and bring prisoners out of bondage. But he is the Lord and there is none that shall share his glory. The former things are done and he is doing a new thing. And how do we respond to this? Isaiah 42 actually continues in verse 10. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth. You who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits, let the inhabitants of Salah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. Praise him, all peoples of the earth. Praise him far and wide. The Lord, the everlasting one, the ancient of days, the rock of our salvation, the glory and the lifter of our heads, our rescuer and redeemer, our strength and our shield, our protector and provider. He who holds all things together, the lion and the lamb, the prince of peace, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the creator of the universe. He has come down and established his kingdom now 
and forevermore. So sing, all nations of the earth, your redemption is here. Arise and shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. But do we believe this? No. I mean, not as often as we should. Often we tend to live more by sight than the reality that is the kingdom of God, which actually takes us back to John's original message from the very beginning. Repent. Turn. Live in light of the kingdom of God. Walk in his ways and you will not faint. Meditate on his laws and precepts and you will be a fruitful tree. It's the same message that was given to five of the seven churches in Revelation. Repent. Turn back to what you once knew. Just because we're believers, that doesn't mean that we don't repent. Repentance is, is merely a turning. It's a bringing every area of our lives under the lordship of Christ. Not just that we are saved, that he is, but that he is actually Lord and ruler over every area of our lives. Repentance is not some sort of a mourning, sorrowful, downtrodden lifestyle. It's, it is a changed heart to follow God's way, which should in reality bring joy, which is the more common companion of repentance in the Bible than sorrow. Because now our eyes have been opened like to the life-giving reality that is God. So our eyes are flooded with light and we actually see the way that we should. The message in Malachi right before the prophecy about John the Baptist coming puts this joy this way. But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. You should go out leaping like cows from the stall. And you shall tread down the wicked, for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. This is a picture of calves who have been penned up from the winter to be let out in the spring. They jump and they bound and they spring for joy to be let loose into the freedom of this good and spacious earth. And the very next verse says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I command him at Horeb for all of Israel, which takes us right back to Moses, bringing the people of Israel out of their bondage in Egypt. The Lord gives them the law, the statutes and rules, and obviously they wander for 40 years in the wilderness, but when it's time for them to enter into the promised land, he continually reminds them of the importance of keeping God's way. In Deuteronomy 7, 12 through 15, it says, and because you listen to these rules and keep them and do them, the Lord your God will keep you with the covenant and the steadfast love that he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you, multiply you. He will also bless the fruit of your womb and the fruit of your ground, your, your grain and your wine and your toil, the increase of your herds and the young of your flock in the land that he swore to your fathers to give you. You shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness and none of the evil diseases of Egypt, which you knew will inflict you, but he will lay them on all who hate you. This is before the cross. This is before the new covenant. How much greater for those of us who have been seated in heavenly places, made one with Christ, given all things pertaining to life and godliness, given the spirit of Christ that raised him from the dead and given his mind. No wonder he tells us that no deadly thing can hurt us. And that, that when we lay our hands on the sick and, and those who have any diseases, that they will recover. 
just as Moses told his people uh, in Deuteronomy 6, when they enter this land, into this kingdom, and you find that there are great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take, lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So when you are the people who have been brought out of bondage and, and the slavery to sin and death, when you've been given all things pertaining to life and godliness, when you have his spirit of empowerment actually in your life and you are filled with the abundant blessing of God, and when you become satisfied with the blessings and they seem like the norm and you expect that this is how things are supposed to be, do not become complacent. Do not forget that all of this is from the gracious and abundant loving hand of God. Do not forget that it is he who brought you out and set you into this place. Do not forget that it is his grace and love that satisfies more than the things of this earth. Do not forget that it is he who has brought you out of slavery and protects you from your enemies. Do not forget that he is the king of all creation, both in heaven and on earth. Do not forget that he is the one who freed you from and what he has freed you into. Do not forget that he is the only one who has ever been found worthy. And do not forget that he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And let that always make you turn and follow in his ways once again. Because as Matthew so clearly showed, the king is here and his kingdom has begun. Let the fruit of your life show that you actually believe this. Amen.